0: Welcome to A Novel Life, a podcast about living life in a novel way. I am Lauren Ruth Martin, a licensed therapist in Tennessee. Keep in mind what we do here sounds a lot like therapy, talks a lot about therapy, but it's not the real deal. So make sure if you're doing the work that you're doing it with a professional. So glad you're here. Let's start the show. Highs, the lows, whatever it is, we've made it through another week and I'm so glad that you're here. How are you doing? I know that's a pretty open-ended question. A lot of people feel different ways about that question right now. Um, and I think, you know, what 2020 has taught me now that I'm thinking about what I want to talk about in this moment is really the benefit of, of being honest when asked that question, how are you? I think that we've all been getting away with the pleasantries of, like, I'm fine, or just sort of covering it up. Um, And I think part of that might be due to feeling like we either have to be covering it up completely or people aren't being genuine when they ask, How are you? And I think it was this week or last week, I was teaching the match plus one skill, an RODBT skills class. And One thing that I was discussing is this idea, it's basically about the art of chit chat, like that skill is about the art of chit chat. And what I think 2020 has done, or at least in my experience, and I've seen it with other people too, is it's really challenged us to be honest when we're even talking to people that are just in our random day to day lives. Um, and, and answering that question in a genuine way and feeling that momentary connection. And if I've talked about this before and you're like, oh my gosh, here she goes again, just brace yourself because you probably need the reminder again. I love this idea of if there's a challenge I can give you this week, it's being honest, like just one step of being honest when people ask how you're doing. So even if you say something of like, you know, like, it's raining, it makes me tired, I want to sit inside and watch SVU all day. But you know what, I think I'm doing okay. How are you? That moment of chit chat, even if you get like a tad warm and fuzzy, or if you're slightly annoyed by it, that moment of connection is genuine. And I think that is something that we have to be more diligent about doing because we have our phones. Um, I know that when I went to go early vote, I had my headphones on purpose um, because I have a tendency to get roped into small talk, and I just wasn't, I wasn't in the headspace to want to small talk. So I had my headphones on purpose. But what I think happens is that we default to our phones and our headphones so often that we miss out on genuine opportunities to connect. And as somebody that used to be a bartender, it was something that I found really cool was that um, the people that would come to where i worked it was really nice to be able to have some of that chit chat i found it draining personally sometimes but to see people connect even if it was for that moment to have that genuine piece of connection if it was over sports or if it was over you know frustrations uh with the world or you know finding an interesting article and getting to know each other i think some of that's been lost and i actually kind of missed that because of the pandemic, we haven't been able to get out as much. And so if you are getting out, if you're running errands, if um, somebody asks how you're doing, I wonder what would feel different for you if you were to actually answer in a genuine way, even if it's still a little bit edited and filtered, how that would feel for you. Um, You know, if you think about people that work in retail, they're about to go into the hardest time of the year. And I think just treating other people in our day to day life like humans can really begin increasing our common humanity during the time of year that I think it's the hardest. If you work in restaurants, if you work in retail, if you work with the general public, like you know that November through January is like, utter madness and like empathy just flies out the window. And you know, and if you're interacting with it, it's really hard to remember because we're so wrapped up in our own stress, you know, that everybody working, like, even if they don't look like they're trying hard, like they're at their job and they're still a human. And so I would encourage y'all to use some small talk this week to just reconnect with the world, especially in a time where we feel so disconnected. Um, let's take a quick breather. When we come back, I'll answer a quick question and then we'll just dive into the show. Don't forget, you can send me your questions anytime on Instagram at novelcounseling. That's where you will find me. And I would love to answer it, hopefully in a cohesive, like, makes sense sort of way. But we all know I tend to ramble. So there's that. This week's question, I actually get a lot. And it's um, asking about my sort of headspace and thought process when picking a grad school. And I'm going to be honest with y'all. I did not think much of it. I knew that I needed a program where I could work full-time. I knew that I wanted to be a therapist. I didn't want to get a doctorate. And um, my program allowed me to be able to work work full-time while taking classes and they accepted me. So that's my process. Um, A few things to consider is mainly thinking about what you want to do and where you can get the most bang for your buck. If I were to go back, I probably would have gone personally would have gone the social work route because I think you get a lot of diversity in what you can do with that degree. So you're able to teach with a master's level. From my understanding, um, you're able to work in a variety of settings. There's an advocacy piece to it. There's a lot that can be done with a social work degree. You can do a lot with a counseling degree, but if you want to do something like teach, um, you have to go get a doctorate. Um, You also, like the licensing is just different and there's a lot more restrictions on what you can do as a pre-licensed therapist as opposed to a social worker or a marriage and family therapist. Also, you have to think about framework. Um, A marriage and family therapist is going to see a lot of things from a more systems perspective. They do get clinical training, but a lot of what they are taught in their coursework is going to be MFT or MFT. It's going to be more systems-based as opposed to a counseling or um, a social work sort of piece. Um, So if you're not really sure where to go, look at your different programs. I'm much more of an in-person learner. Some people thrive online. Um, so don't be, forget to rule out those options. Um, when it comes to cost, like I just kind of went in with reckless abandon and I was like, you know what? Like if I'm going to go into debt, I'm going to go into debt. Would Dave Ramsey or like a financial advisor recommend that? No. Would I really recommend that? No, but I'm not in shambles. And so like I made it work. Um, It does cost money to become a therapist, not only in grad school, but once you graduate, supervision, testing, ongoing CEUs, if you're going to go into private practice, um, navigating those costs, it's not a cost effective endeavor. I knew that going into it, I just sort of have this mentality of make it work. And so I did take that risk. If you're considering grad school, think about what financial risk you're willing to take. Um, seeing if there are programs where you can do more of a work study. Um, if you can hold a job down, I bartended while um, while in grad school. like what makes sense for you? to do look into the different curriculums you'll be able to see what's in those curriculums and if that's going to be helpful for you and also just ask around like I love sharing with people my process because I've made mistakes I've done a lot of cool things and I like to do that and so if you know somebody else in the field or if you know if there's a therapist on Instagram that you enjoy then just message them and they'll give you a little bit of insight what I will say is that um uh, accreditation is important, like KCREP accreditation, um, and also looking into what each state requires. So what I've done as um, a therapist in Tennessee may be different than if I were in another state. So make sure that you're also checking what's required in your state, Um, if you're wanting to do telehealth, like how you can get multiple state licenses, just kind of see what makes sense for you to do. Um, I don't regret going to grad school. I have thoroughly enjoyed my career so far. It has been able to warrant me a lot of different freedoms, um, sometimes I do get jealous that my, you know, husband gets to leave his work at work. um, But that's also my choice to work this way. Um, You know, there's pros and cons to it. And it's a really fun career and the demand is only going to go up, we just may have to be creative with how we practice in the future. All right, when we get back from the break, I'm going to chat about the difference between distracting and coping. Okay, so this week's topic is going to require us to be a little bit more honest about ourselves. I think that we may have to ask ourselves a few hard questions, um, but that's that's what we do around here. So the main topic is going to be the difference between distraction and truly coping and with this year. Um, Especially this year, but I think over the past few years, the concept of self care has been very popular. Um, The idea of like having self care kits and like self care days and mental health days, and especially with the increase of the wellness industry, of having, you know, your face mask and your oils and your skincare regimen like, all these things are fine and dandy. Candles, like, I'm just thinking of all the things all of this stuff is great. Love it, you know, swear by it. What happens though, and we've all seen the memes, and we all know that we do it, is sometimes when we rely on, and I'm going to use some standard DBT terms. So if you're wondering what that is, um, just, you'll be able to Google them along the way. What happens is if we begin relying on our distress tolerance skills, like self-soothing, distraction, um even doing things like uh, stall tactics in ro of like delaying before we go into problem solving, if we continue to use this stuff to sort of manage our crises or um you know, more day-to-day events and we don't really go into active problem solving or coping, what that will tend to do is only create more problems for us and it's really going to decrease our ability to, to problem solve. Um, and so a good example of this would be the idea of distraction. So in standard DBT, team, um, we teach about the skill of distraction. Um, in RO, we call them stall tactics. Um, and then, you know, it what happens is that we use that skill, but we don't do this with the intention of coming back. So like, let's say there's a conversation that I need to have with somebody. And I really don't want to do it. And I'm finding myself experiencing a lot of physical distress from it. What I may do is turn on a show, you know, do some laundry, do some distraction to prevent me from ruminating or compulsively planning. However, what can happen is if I go into that without intention or a plan, I may lose track of time either on purpose or unknowingly to where that conversation isn't had. And then another day goes by to where I haven't done that thing that I need to do. And so that's the problem when we tend to over rely. Um, The same can be done for like self soothing or deep breathing is that if we use these skills to sort of numb out our distress, then we're going to lose our muscle memory to be able to work through things that are distressing. Um, that or we anticipate the distress happening. And we basically cut ourselves off from being able to express it. And this is like the one time that I wish I had video while doing this. um, Because it's the idea of our discomfort. And really, all of our emotions are meant to ebb and flow. And anxiety is, you know, it's designed to peak for a reason, because it's this threat system exists to alert us to things. So it's got a peak in order to naturally sort of regulate or flow after that. Now, if you have panic disorder, if you do have extreme anxiety, um, if you have OCD, you know, part of that is learning to navigate those highs and lows um, instead of trying to avoid the discomfort altogether, because the more that we avoid it, the less that we have the muscles to be able to work it. And that's what's going to lead to overall numbness. And that is what happens when we overuse our distraction, we overuse our skills of self soothing or overuse our skills of distress tolerance, we then lose our tolerance for distress. So then what do we do with this? Well, the idea of Skills like an RODBT, we have skills of activating social safety and self-inquiry. Those skills are designed to be paired with shifting our social signaling. And standard DBT, our skills of distraction and self-soothing and imagery and cheerleading and turning the mind are meant to help get us out of moments of crisis. So then we can proceed with more emotion regulation or interpersonal effectiveness skills. So it's the idea of we stop using our distress tolerance or self-soothing skills as our sole coping skill, but something that we pair in order to navigate the moment better. And I actually, there, I love teaching this concept because I think, once we realize how we can pair them together or you know a lot of what we do in ro is you do the thing and then you reward yourself after um it's all about how you pair it so if you tend to if we think about using it as like more of a preventative tool so if i have a conversation coming up that i'm really nervous about um like let's say this is released on Wednesday, let's say on Friday, I have to have a conversation with, um, you know, with my parents about the holidays and I'm not really looking forward to it. What I may do in a preventative way is if I find myself ruminating about it, if I find myself sort of like just kind of caught, you know, mental rehearsal or looping about it, I may use distraction there, um, along with a little bit of self inquiry to see like where some of this anxiety is coming from. Um, I also may use distraction, um, with a little bit of opposite action. So throw myself into something in order to not ruminate as much. Now, when Friday comes around and I have to have this conversation, then I may use, you know, some self soothing or some encouragement or, um, You know, I'm trying to think of like deep breathing skills or even the tip skill if my anxiety gets really high and I'm in crisis, I may use that to decrease the intensity of my reaction in the moment so that I can actually face the conversation in a more skillful way. Um, if I lean on the more over-controlled side, what I may do is really focus and rehearse a little bit of activating social safety so that I can stay engaged in the conversation and also not avoid the conversation altogether. So again, if we see that like I'm committing to having this conversation in this conversation that I'm having with my parents about the holidays, I may have to call on different skills in my either in DBT interpersonal effectiveness or an RODBT skill around outing myself and being more candid in it. But I'm also going to bridge it with more of this distress tolerance and self-soothing leading up to it so that I haven't engaged in a lot of rumination. I've allowed myself to experience some discomfort, but not an overwhelming amount of discomfort to where it's not beneficial. Um, so using those skills as a preventative way can be helpful in sort of managing our emotional bandwidth as we approach something that is causing us to feel uncomfortable. All right. So then when we think about using these skills as more of a reward, this is something that we can do, um, for rewarding us for doing things that we may not do normally. So let's say like stuff like self-soothing, um, or, um, you know, there's even the DBT skill vacation, like where we don't think about something for a little bit, or we take a break with the the idea of coming back to it. It may be like if I had a test on Friday, and it's in a really difficult class, I've taken the test, I, you know, dealt with the distress of doing it. And regardless of my grade after since I did something that was distressing, I may use some of these skills to help me come down, but also to reward myself for doing something uncomfortable this can be done too in order to give ourselves, you know to reward ourselves for doing things that are hard now some people have the mentality of like well we should be doing this stuff anyway you know like why reward yourself for something that you should be doing in the first place and the thing is if you weren't doing it before then like, what is beating yourself up even going to do? Like, I don't know anybody. Well, I do know plenty of people. I don't find it to be the healthiest thing that really benefit or keep doing things that are good for themselves by beating themselves up more about it. Eventually that's going to get old. So when it comes to like actually coping You know, we bridge some of that other self soothing distress tolerance stuff, not only in a preventative way, but also to help us get through the moment, but also to help us manage the after effects and to reward ourselves for doing something that we normally wouldn't do and so if you did something that's very distressing like have a conversation you didn't want to have um, or you know take a test or go another day without using an unskillful behavior you would then use some of that self-soothing as a way to keep going we can also incorporate this stuff throughout our day in order to maintain our well-being so the idea of having like essential oils around um, having a candle in our office um, having a reminder in your phone to do DM breathing, keeping ice packs around the house, Um, incorporating that stuff into our day to day life can also be that's more on the preventative angle, but it's also in reaction to if we do the thing, then we have something to help manage some of the after effects that may come from it. So there is value in these skills of distress tolerance or helping us activate social safety. Now, when it comes to like actual coping, that's facing some of this stuff head on. And oftentimes, it's the thing that we really don't want to do. However, facing those challenges, big and small, are essential for our mental well-being. And as I said, challenges big and small. In RODBT, we believe that any practice of openness, whether it's big or small, has just as much of an impact on our in our well-being So the idea of recognizing that anytime that we use problem solving or effective coping skills, it's beginning to rewire ourselves to have better practices. For example, if I do laundry in full, wash, dry, fold and put away, like that's an accomplishment. If I don't put it off, that's effective problem solving. And so when we think about Well, what are true coping skills? Like when we think about true blue coping skills That's like using full-blown opposite action to not engage in your unskillful behaviors. That's like using urge surfing to really let that discomfort peak and do what you need to do. So it's having conversations you don't want to have. It's making appointments you don't want to make. It's allowing yourself to feel some grief that you've been avoiding for a long time. That's like journaling. That's working through a flashback. That's... um, I think I've probably said it 5 million times, having the conversation you don't want to have, Um, you know, going through some of that discomfort that is active and necessary, like doing the work in therapy happens in the room, but you're going to get more bang for your buck if you implement it into your daily life. So if you're, if you're with a therapist that assigns homework, see where you can put that in your day-to-day life. If you're with a therapist that doesn't assign homework, think about that takeaway or think about some of the things that are coming up for you, like where that's showing up in your day-to-day life. Like in the midst of processing trauma, like you can begin noticing having like that bodily awareness of like where the sort of trauma triggers are, and how to work through that in the moment instead of numbing it out, or engaging in distraction, distraction and distress tolerance skills are meant to basically take our intense waves of emotion like at a 10, and to bring us to a six or seven so that we can work through it. Sometimes we have to work through things at a higher level because life is like that. And sometimes we just have to like, you know, bite it and and work through our emotions at a higher level. But if we have the ability to take our intense emotions and bring them to a more manageable level or begin to integrate these sort of problem solving and um, regulating or shifting or being mindful and challenging, if we begin sort of reshaping our reactions earlier on, we're also going to see some reward in that. Like if you know that you have a tendency to procrastinate, and you have that first urge of procrastination, rather than either giving into the urge or using some distress tolerance, using some of that, that opposite action or going opposite to shame, to work through that discomfort in the moment. So to give you sort of like a you know, cliff notes of what I mean by this. If we think about distress, so whatever distress looks like for you, distraction, self-soothing, distress tolerance and all that, that is designed to make your discomfort more manageable in the moment. So if you think about like, am I distracting or this? Am I needing to bring my discomfort to a manageable level? That would be a good function of it. And then when do I go into more problem solving, addressing the issue? That's when, if you're at a place where you can openly work through it, it's that idea of like, okay, now I'm looking at tackling this discomfort at the source. So both of these things involve managing distress. It's just one is merely turning down the volume on the distress. And one is beginning to eliminate and resolve discomfort. And I'll be honest with y'all. And I feel the need to say this quite often because if we pursue life in the sense of if we're pursuing the constant um, removal of discomfort, then we're either going to find ourselves very exhausted or with a lot of stuff built up because we're not addressing it discomfort is a necessary part of life. And I think that that is something that therapy has not done a good job of explaining. Um, We talk about like, therapy is supposed to be gaining skills, gaining a toolbox, learning to work with discomfort rather than eliminate it. Now, we can reduce the intensity of our triggers, we can reduce the intensity of our depressive episodes, like there are things that we can remove the intensity, but we can't stop discomfort from occurring. Because discomfort is necessary information to show us that either we need to continue working on something, or that something isn't working for us anymore. So if we're in therapy, or if we're constantly pursuing to never have that discomfort, or to never feel triggered again, then I'm just gonna be frank with you, it's gonna be a fruitless effort. Like we we need discomfort in our life in order to fuel us to change. You know, if I think about discomfort, almost like yoga, if I never experienced discomfort, then I would injure my body. So our discomfort serves us. And I think that's why therapies like acceptance and commitment therapy and radically open DBT are becoming more and more popular because we've been spending a lot of time on trying to reduce the presence of discomfort that it's led to a lot of numbing and it's led to a lot of over control of our emotional state, because those are things that we have valued. And I will tell you that there is a way to be you know professional, whatever that means to you. Um, basically, there's ways to be not a hot mess while still experiencing discomfort and it, acknowledging that the discomfort is there. I think a lot of things are designed to to make us more comfortable and I think that's actually doing us a disservice. I love being comfortable. like I like right now, if you were in my living room, I have bought a bean bag, I got soft blankets, I love fuzzy socks, like comfort is my jam. However, if I'm consistently pursuing comfort, or trying to avoid discomfort at all costs, I'm doing myself a disservice because I'm not, I'm not challenging myself in effective ways. I think that discomfort can be glorified. I don't think that we should pursue discomfort just for the sake of um, it looking good. Like if you're comfortable, you're not working hard enough. Like, you know what? Like bump that mess. Like I don't do that. But the idea is to have a more flexible approach to comfort and discomfort and to see if our comfort is serving us or if it's holding us back. Is our discomfort serving us or holding us back? And so again, If you've noticed the common theme here, you know, episode 21, you've probably caught on to a few things. What we're trying to do is to find better intention when using our distraction and to find better intention when we are problem solving and trying to resolve certain discomforts because we don't need to force ourselves to be uncomfortable to grow, but we do have to learn to sit in that discomfort in order to grow. So I hope that makes sense. Um, Basically, there's value in both distraction and problem solving. We just need to have better intention into how we use it. Thank y'all so much for listening to another episode. I need y'all to do me a favor. I say it every week. You've probably like, don't hang up now. I need you to rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast. Please share it. I want this to get out there. And I'm so grateful to those of y'all that are engaged in this. It means it means more than you'll ever know. So if you have questions, if you have feedback, you can message me at novel counseling. Um, I hope that you guys have the week that you're going to have. We'll make it through another week and I'll see you then.